Hi, welcome once again to From the Center, a podcast from the Center for Western Studies. I'm Jack Bow. I guess I'm your host. Am I the host? Or You're we kind the of the host. host. I guess. Yeah. I guess. Sorry, right. I am your host, yeah. Jack Bow, on faculty at the Center for Western Studies, joined as always by my friend and colleague, John Hodges, the director for the Center of Western Studies, sir. Yeah, it's good to see you, Jack. Um, you're not only the uh, host, I guess, but you're the uh, assistant director of the center, and you are probably our main tutor next with me uh, of all these students. So uh, you've got all sorts of, uh, what, roles important, and important titles, titles and things. I still have not secured the title of Supreme Overlord of the Universe, but I'm working on it. Well, everybody has to have a goal. Everybody has to have a hobby. Yeah. Uh, well, it's we've been a while. I think we skipped a week because of uh, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, that's right. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? I did. I had a good National Gluttony Day. It was National Gluttony Day. It was very, it was very, it was very delicious and wonderful. <laughs> and Christmas can finally start. Yes, yes. And yes. I believed originally we were maybe thinking about talking about Advent, but something else has occurred. Yeah, I'd like to talk about Advent because it's really not Christmas that's starting, is it? It's Advent that's yes, starting. The Advent coming season. up. And uh, that's a season that often gets sh- short shrift uh, in our in our uh, society today. Uh, everybody starts buying Christmas presents, uh, and uh, they think this is the Christmas season. But actually, Christmas starts on on December twenty fifth. But I'd like to talk about that uh, in future weeks. Yes, uh, we'll be talking about uh, the differences between Advent and Christmas, and talking about maybe some of the. Uh, some of the uh, uh, scriptures in uh, in the Bible about the various aspects of Advent and uh, how they get interpreted and and uh, maybe even some Christmas carols in there too. Right. Um, but in the meantime, before we get there, to the fun stuff, yeah, there was a there was a rather shocking New York Times uh, opinion piece this week uh, entitled "The Unexamined Brutality of the Male Libido." Right. It was. And, uh, Put out November 25th by a Stephen Marsh or Marche. Not uh-huh, sure how that last uh-huh, name is pronounced. Uh-huh. Let, let's set this up yeah. uh, for a second here. Uh, there's been in recent uh, weeks, sometimes it feels like months, but like in recent weeks, there's been a slew of uh, all kinds of things coming forward of sexual assault allegations from all kinds of people in the entertainment and news uh, agencies. They certainly like, have. Uh, I mean, politics, it is Hollywood. It is interesting, like something like this, like a some powerful male figure somewhere in the entertainment industry or the news agency or politics getting caught maybe with their pants down is not necessarily new, so to speak, is not necessarily new. Uh, I'm thinking of Bill Cosby has been like, you know, right. Right. And the whole Clinton scandal in the 90s. But when Harvey Weinstein, the big producer i guess as he is right when his story broke about how many women he had abused sexually assaulted and sexually used and like all the 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 like the tentacles of his power like reaching into all kinds of places to silence and coerce and shut up and like something about that story just kind of blew the lid off Mm -hmm. and now suddenly it's like Actors upon actors upon politicians upon politicians upon news people upon news people just all falling like dominoes as more people come out. Some of the issues get really contentious. I know like the Alabama Senate race thing is pretty contentious for people, which sometimes feels sad that like a sexual assault allegation has to turn into like, well, whose side are you on politically? But regardless, it's all this stuff has been going up like sparks flying upward. And 
people have been pontificating on this. All right, trying to like, oh, because that's what we do. Okay, there's always a talking class, a chattering class right. that loves to pontificate upon these things. And so people are trying to talk about it. There, there's even like the post Weinstein America kind of idea. Mm. I think I, I may even have said post Weinstein just a few minutes ago. But <laughs> what, what? Tell tell everybody what that means. Post Weinstein. It means yeah. basically just a post in that sense. It's just like after the event, like after something has been revealed. Now that Weinstein has been revealed, right? There's a different world. Is that? Is that? I it? guess it's like a different awareness of yeah. things. Uh-huh. Some people use like they would say post Ferguson, like yes. the whole Ferguson right. thing. Like there's sure. a different awareness. Not that something new is happening, but that a new awareness has come up in the mainstream. Like in the mainstream. And now it's like normal knowledge uh, that these things have been going on. Like I said, people have been pontificating about it. And there was a particular pontification that came across my desk, so to speak, my digital desk. Um, It was this article that you mentioned from the New York Times called The Unexamined Brutality of the Male Libido by Stephen Marsh or Marche. It was released on November 25th, if you want to go look it up. And I read it, and it's... It irritated me, but it didn't irritate me in the sense of, like, I want to spend this podcast talking about the article. I mean, it'll be sort of like a jumping-off point, but mm-hmm. it irritated me because a lot of its assumptions it was working from are a lot of assumptions that I don't agree with or I'm, like, battling against in my own studies in the Ph.D. world, but just out in culture in general. There was a lot of sort of cliché assumptions he had about sexuality about relationship in general even about how like relationships between people even work and it it was so irritating that i couldn't like i I (laughs) couldn't stop thinking about it for a while and so i thought i would bring it up to maybe have some kind of discussion using the article sort of a springboard but uh having a discussion about certain assumptions our society has about sexuality specifically but even like relationship in general that Uh is just off base because one thing that made this article frustrating is that it it was had a lot of foolish things to say in there okay it had a lot of that's a good word for it i think they were not not so much stupid things but foolish things it had foolishness in there but it had it, it was circling or orbiting around certain truths enough that you can't just simply say, oh, that's dumb, and walk on. There's, like, something we got to disentangle right. from it. Right. Now, basically, the argument within the article is that male sexuality is inherently dangerous and brutal. That is inherently so. That that's the very nature of right. it. Right. Um, and he says that, he also says that sex is uh, about power. And that's basically all right. it is. Sex, of course, is about power. I don't think he necessarily, I don't know if he says it's only about that, but the way he puts it, he just kind of exclusively says sex is about power, and within that dynamic, male sexuality is inherently brutal. And that men need to have a conversation about this, because that's our postmodern society's solution for everything, is to have a conversation about it. Uh, Like, Does the conversation go anywhere, or does everybody just get to, you know, express themselves? We'll never know. Or to vent or something like that, we'll never know. But... He says men need to have a conversation about their inherently brutal sexual nature in the power dynamic of sex and ends by saying a couple of odd statements. Uh, He has uh, several odd statements there, but he ends by saying two. Number one is that he used the example of, what's the guy's name? Uh, I just see him say Mr. Max here. Tucker Max. Tucker Max, right. Tucker Max. There it is. Tucker Max was a guy who 
uh, joked kind of misogynistically about things until he took a course of classical Freudian analysis, and that made him a better man. Somehow having a f understanding Freudian analysis of sexuality is the thing. So A, sex is about power. B, males, the male side of sexuality is brutality. C, Freudian analysis uh, is the solution to this, because I guess Freudian analysis says these things or gives part of the grounds for these things. And then D, the final statement, he said the actual last sentence of the whole thing is he said that morality will not save us, only culture can. No. Which is an interesting statement we can get to. Yeah, let's talk about that. that. Let's talk about but that. But I guess we can get with, uh, get with those four points. The, with uh, Sex and even relations are about power. Male sexuality is about brutality. Only Freudian analysis can save us. And then that last statement about morality can't help us, only culture can. I think we can find some problems with each of those four statements if we want to uh, uh, analyze his assumptions. Sex, sex is about power. Mm -hmm. Isn't it true that sex is powerful? Yes. We can certainly say that. Mm -hmm. But can't we say that powerful things can be used for good or ill? Sure. I think that's a fair statement. So, I mean, if you see a, you know, a, a huge steamroller coming at you, you wouldn't say, that's evil because it's powerful. Right. Well, you wouldn't say that. It's got a job to do to s s smooth out the, the road, uh, and you need a great deal of power to be able to do that. So power in and of itself is not inherently evil, uh, but what we're assuming here is that that sex is about power, and power uh, is damaging, can only damage. Right. Well, can't power also do good things? So power is not inherently evil. Sure. There's also even, there may be an argument to be made that sex can't just be reduced to simply power. Because... To say the least, that's the next part, isn't it? Right. Go ahead, if you want well, to. Because what I'm hearing in it, and this was one of the initial things that irritated me, is that and this is a drum I beat often, maybe until the, uh, the, you know, the skin of it falls off, <laughs> but in our, our society is intellectually and eventually culturally has been affected by post-structural kind of thinking, which I keep bringing that word up. Basically, it took the ideas of the structuralist that language was an arbitrary construct, like it has no real connection to reality in any substantial right. sense. It's right. just, it's just uh, society sort of just made up these words to like talk about reality, to describe things, but it has no real connection to it. There's no empirical, empirically verifiable connection between the word a society came up for something and that thing. Right. Well, they took that idea and they noticed that, you know, language kind of affects everything. You know, not just what you say, but also how you think and it affects culture and society. So this big arbitrary construct suddenly became, went from just being this small little like, well, the words we use to suddenly everything and everywhere. And so the idea that gender is a social construct or uh, your identity is a social construct or the uh, uh, national identity or personal identity, all that stuff is socially constructed came out of that. And what comes out of that, add to it the Nietzschean idea about how the will to power is fundamental and everybody is trying to, you know, assert their own power to dominate, not be dominated. Add those two things together, which most post-structuralists did because guys from Foucault all the way to Deleuze held Nietzsche as like an inspirational, foundational thinker to them. That's right. Um, the arbitrary constructions that go on in society are about power. All right. They're about power, about us trying to dominate each other. And there's a weird sort of 
uh, how to say this, sort of like there's a weird back and forth between like all that power is necessarily oppressive and must be overthrown. But then if it's all power, then even our overthrowing it is about power. Right. So maybe we can't say power is bad. We just say that it's what's there. It's about domination. And that's the thing. It's like if we want to say sex is powerful and powerful things to be used for good, that's one thing. But when I hear in an article like this them say, well, sex is simply about power, for me the word power in that context doesn't mean it's powerful or it has a certain force or energy to it. It means specifically domination. Right. That power is about uh, trying to dominate and not be dominated. Right. So if sex right. is nothing but power, then it's two people basically trying to dominate each other and not be dominated, which I, it, it, it like sounds foolishly absurd in a sexual relationship, and yet it almost sometimes makes sense. Uh, you know, you want to be, you know, the one in the powerful position, but both people want to be there, so maybe that creates like sexual dysfunction and stuff like that. But still, this idea that sex is power means sex is about domination. Right. Okay. Well, if that's how we're defining power in this case, then we need to rethink um, the root of the tree then. Because what we're dealing with, it seems to me, is the various branches of, the, of, a, of a tree that, is, that has grown from its roots in the wrong direction. What if we, at, at some point in time in the past, decided that, uh, that sex was really not about procreation and creating a family and turned it into something that was purely for personal individual even pleasure mm -hmm. so that so that the sexual act becomes something that is um, purely individualistic and purely uh, for the for my pleasure regardless of yours mm. and uh, so you know first of all you, you can think Jesus actually taught that Real love is the sacrifice of yourself for the benefit of someone else, mm -hmm. like he did for us. So we have a warped view of love to begin with, if that's what we think it's really all about. Mm -hmm. But then when we step into a sexual relationship, uh, and each each partner uh, is interested in getting his or her own benefit out of that, so that so it does set up a situation where... Each of them is vying for power in the way you just described it, mm -hmm. vying for dominance. And, and uh, in that sense, they're both trying to outdo the other one. They're trying to give uh, as little and get as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And in, if you define sex that way, well, then it's not surprising then that, first of all, we'd have a kind of perverse view of how people relate. But then also, because uh, that's what that is, a perverse view. But also, uh, uh, it's not surprising that it would become uh, predatory, mm -hmm. that uh, it would end up in people like Bill Clinton and Harvey Weinstein, Dean, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, taking advantage of everybody they can possibly take advantage of for their own personal pleasure. Now, it is, th this is another uh, kind of like one of the disturbing parts of it is that you can directly connect up that kind of predatory, perverse view of sexuality to individualism. To the idea right. that the individual self, the individual and their needs, their wishes, their wants, and their desires, their preferences, their opinions, trumps all. Right. Like it trumps exactly. all any sort of imposition upon it. It trumps any sort of directive on it. Um, there have been people who try to argue, try to sort of bring traditional, traditional morality in the back door, which by traditional morality, I mean the old Aristotelian idea that uh, you can't be happy until you're good. Uh -huh. And so they'll say, like, well, you can't be a really fully realized individual unless you are 
decent to other people. You know, they try and bring it in the back door, uh-huh. which I appreciate. Although there's a problem with that, and this is you can find this anywhere from like existentialists talking about inner subjectivity, you know, to uh-huh. uh, libertarians talking about the self-interest principle in capitalism. This sure. idea of like, well, you're not Ayn really, Rand. yeah, you're not really fulfilling your uh, subjectivity unless you're being good to other subjectivities, or you're giving them the same space, or you're not really fulfilling your self-interest unless you're being decent in your job so that people, you know, won't think you're a cheat or something like that. Well, it's a little like reality steps in and they have to explain it somehow because right. there really is something built into us that recognizes that simply dominating somebody else is not a good thing. Right, but even, and you're right, in addition to that, their move is understandable, but it still causes a problem in that in the old uh, formulation of it, that you can't be happy unless you're good. Yeah. In that old formulation, happiness and goodness were not actually separate from each other. Right to be happy meant to have the good. The good was where you were happy. Right. All right. 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 It's like so. It's like it's. It wasn't like a. It's not just moralistic. Right. Thing. It wasn't a hoop you had to jump through. Right. It's like exactly. well, if, if you be good first, then I'll let you be happy. Right. All right. right. Then I'll give you right. your happy. No, it was tied together. You're not happy unless you're good. Because the implication is that it might be that I'll be happier if I do something evil. Right. That's the thing. Is like yeah, exactly. The kind of inner subjectivity or the self-interest rule or things like that that's still based on individual separates happiness from goodness. Right. And it basically says that, well, look, if I want to fulfill my self-interest, if I want to be happy, I have to jump through these hoops first. That's right. Now, if I get in a position where I don't have to worry about those hoops, if the laws are such a way or my current context is such a way. Or I'm so wealthy that I have the power that I want to be able to make people do what I want them to do. Then I can just bypass the whole be good thing to fulfill my self-interest. And go straight to happiness. Right. So even in the attempt to try and moralize individualism, say like, well, you're not really an individual unless you're being good, they have still implicitly separated goodness from happiness right and goodness becomes a hoop you got to jump through or something you have to do in order to get happiness which is a separate thing which usually is like whatever you personally want sure i'll give you know it could be any it could be something as horrible as like you know i'll get wealthy enough so i can be predatory or it could be something as sort of asinine as like i'll give charity to the poor as long as it gives me a tax write-off Right, you know, or something right. like that. You know, exactly as long right. as it makes sure that in the end I get more profit for myself, or something like that. That's right. And so, all of this is tied up in individualism, in the pleasing of the self. And if you start with that, the self and the realization of a self, self actualization, is the ultimate goal. Self actualization uh, and self determination. Right. Those things are the actual goals. If you right. set those the actual goals. Even if you try to moralize about it and say that, well, you can't be really self-actualized, even if you're super complicated about it, like Hegel was, uh, about how you can't actualize unless you're actualizing yourself in reference to others, yeah. you still have separated goodness and happiness, goodness from whatever the self wants. And as, and as soon as you make self-realization or self-actualization your goal, you've already gone down the wrong tube. Because you can't, and you can't get to where you were hoping to do. You have to separate happiness from from goodness. Then, because right. uh, because self act, the idea of self actualization itself is inherently immoral mm-hmm. in in Christian terms. Right. We're, when we say when we say that the temptation in the garden was that uh, you can call your own shots, right. it was a call to self actualization. It was yep. saying you can make yourself any way you want to. Now, I think the individualism actually explains a great deal of the kind of post-structural theory that you've been talking about because 
Uh, individualism implies this self-actualization at the root, it, and it isn't questioned. It's assumed right. that that's the goal. So if that's if that's the thing, then um, um, then then let's adjust language in order to get us what we want. Right. Let's restructure the world. Let's let's restructure reality itself in order to make it the way we want it to be for our own individual and if you're, uh, and, desires. And that sounds like very, uh, on the surface, just saying it like that, can sound very, you know, attractive. Like, you know, yes, yeah. I'll follow. It can sound, you know, I keep saying the Disneyfied version. We love Disney, <laughs> please. No angry comments. But the idea of, like, just follow your heart and stuff like that, sure, right? And, and, sure. and, and, you know, let nobody push your dreams away and if you want to cross the boundaries then you go ahead and cross the boundaries and it sounds all wonderful and inspirational and stuff until you're harvey weinstein exactly like harvey weinstein then suddenly there's a limit yeah. let's talk about that for a second if you let me just give an example an, an analogy let's say um i here's the fireplace here we haven't gotten a fire in it right now but if i were to set a fire in that fireplace the wood that burns would would um uh, sit on a hard iron grate that doesn't burn. Right. And it would sit, the fire itself would sit in the midst of a stone and ceramic, uh, I guess that's what it is, uh, fire, fire box in there that's built specifically not to burn. Right. Those things don't burn, right? Okay, so then you can set fire to your wood and you can have a blazing, roaring fire going on in that fireplace and be at peace about it because it's not any danger to you, right. it, relatively speaking. Right. But if you were to grab that same big pile of fire wood that's burning right. and drag it out of that firebox, off of those iron grates, and onto the rug in front of us in the living room here, mm. it would be extremely dangerous, right? Right. right? And it would have no limits on it then by the fireplace, and it would simply burn up everything that's burnable. And most of the things in this room are burnable. Right. So the house would actually possibly catch fire. What I'm trying to say is, we have a power in fire mm-hmm. that's that is um, that it, it that is requ- for it to to be all that it can be. It requires limits. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to put a firebox around it to control it, so that it can do all the things that it can do well: give heat, give light, give beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those things are possible. However. If you pull it out into the room, in other words, you take it away from its limits, you may say, how exciting. Right. <laughs> right. But, but yeah. Certainly exciting. It would be, and it's a power. My, my earlier point about power in the sense of force, just mm-hmm. just energy in, in motion, uh, there's a great deal of power in fire. Yes. And yet, put in its right place, that fire is beautiful and, and uh, useful. Uh, but in put in its wrong place, it's dangerous. The problem is, what I'm reading in this this piece by this fellow in the New York Times mm-hmm. is, or actually, I'm I'm really referring now to that Andrea Dworkin uh, quote oh, that, that said yeah. the only sex that would be worthwhile is for men not to be men, basically, basically. men not to be to be what she called flaccid. I hate to be too uh, specific about all this, but that's what she's talking about. Right. Well. What she's saying is, fire is too dangerous. You have to have the only safe fire would be a fire that doesn't burn. Right. Right. Well, well, that's mean. That's that's what I meant when I said it's foolishness. It's it's a misunderstanding of the nature of fire. 
you see? Yeah. And we've been talking several times about along the, in these various podcasts about how education is actually the grasping of, recognition of, discovery of the natures of things. Mm. The nature of fire is a certain set of characteristics. If you can capture those characteristics in their right spot and give a structure to it, then you can enjoy that power rightly. Mm -hmm. If you take it out of those characteristics, then you can't. And in, in sexuality is exactly like that fire. The passion that she's talking about, male libido that he's talking about, mm -hmm. uh, is something that is um, powerful. Mm -hmm. But it's not inherently evil that it's powerful. Right. It's only evil when it's used for domination. Well, how do you stop this power mm -hmm. from being dominating and yet not lose its power? Yeah, and that's, that is the catch. It's like Power in in the post structuralist mindset, power and domination are like wedded at the hip. It's right. also, they're like synonyms for right. each other. Right. And yet we would understand that power doesn't have to dominate. A fire in a fireplace is powerful, but it's not dominating. You know, right. it still has its power to burn and to create heat and create light and to create beauty, which is itself a kind of power. But it doesn't have power to dominate. If it was instead in the middle of the rug. And it just was freely going. That's very. That's amongst other things dominating. Like it wants Absolutely to dominate right. the space. But it can be in a fireplace and not be dominating and still be powerful, still have certain kind of power when it's focused in a certain way. That's right. And that's so, right. There's a, so we're looking at a world that says we don't want the fireplace, we want the fire. But we want fire that doesn't burn. But then when fire burns and does and runs rampant, suddenly, yeah. Suddenly we say we we want if the only kind of fire we want then is fire that doesn't burn because look at all the damage it does. Basically, right? I mean this still holds to like we want it our way, but we don't want the consequences of it. Like I what? want the fire out of the fireplace, but I also don't want it to burn. Right. Well, I don't want it to burn because it does damage to the house. Yeah. And and what I hear in this argument is uh, this: You see that burned house over there? Yeah, that's because of fire. <laughs> yes, right. it is. Fire is rotten and horrible. It's nothing but domination. See? And you say, well, hang on a second. No, no, no. Look at the damage it's done. Look at the horror it's done. Yes, I see that. But don't you see, if you, if you, if you allow fire to be powerful, you're going to see nothing but destruction. Right. Well, oh, oh, slow down. Right. <laughs> you know, I want to say, take a breath. Take an easy breath there. There's, there is a structure that goes around sexuality mm. that we have rejected. Right. We don't want limits to it. But then we complain when the lack of limits allows for damage. Right. What we're looking at now, I think, is a, a sexual uh, uh, revolution that you might argue goes back to the 60s. You could argue that it goes back even further than that. But the 60s, certainly, there was a sexual kind of revolution that said you don't need marriage and you don't need to fear pregnancy. You know, we had the pill, right? right? We, had, we, we, got, we, got, we arranged so that women could be just as, as, uh, moral, as immoral sexually as men were being because then they didn't have to carry the, the burden of the responsibility of the pregnancy. Right. Um, so, we, so we broke down marriage and we gave, gave the pill to, to, to women. And then what we've got is a, a shift, the shift I was talking about a minute ago, from uh, sex being something that is for the family and for uh, intimacy within marriage, within the framework of the firebox mm -hmm. of called marriage. Mm -hmm. 
and and uh, we've taken the firebox away, and we have taken away all the consequences, and we've said go f- be free and do as any you know, sleep with anybody and anything you want to, yeah. and then we see that there really was a damage that was done by this fire that was taken out of the box. Yeah, it's interesting when you you connected it to this idea that you know they're looking at a house that burned down and saying like look the fire burned it down, and what's frustrating about having, say, a discussion with a person like that, whether literally or analogously, is that in one way and in one sense, they're not wrong. Right. There's they're, some they're truth in that. There's some truth in it, which was another part that made the article frustrating, is there was his statements, the foolish statements were tangled up in, like, true ideas. For example, the notion that domination and brutality and trying to, like, assert yourself as kind of a bad or dangerous thing, let's say dangerous, I want to say a bad thing, is not untrue. Right. Uh, is not untrue. It actually goes back before Nietzsche had the idea of the will to power. You go back about, you know, uh, 1,500 years before him, when Augustine wrote The City of God, he said, well, he said a lot of things in The City of God, but, <laughs> but one of the things he said is that the City of God is built on grace. That, like, that's right. its defining characteristic right. is grace. But the city of man, the city of humanity, all our various societies and empires and things that come and go, all of them can be defined by what he called the libido dominandi. That's an interesting word. uh, Which I think is Latin. It means like the will or the desire to dominate. Right. right? So he had it back then. And he said it was a characteristic of a place not infused or didn't have the presence of God's grace in it is that that's how it's always going to be. It's always going to be about power and domination. Like that's just our natural fallen state. And that needs to change. You know, even non-Christians like Aristotle recognize that, you know, we have to be disciplined to be virtuous. You know, we don't do it naturally. For some reason, we'll always just be selfish or like in some way kind of even even our charity is about making sure we get that tax return type thing. And so Mm. there is this attitude that, yes, Outside of a certain context, and not just like, well, actually, yeah, marriage can be tied up to grace in a way. Yeah. yeah, outside of a particular context, human nature in general is driven towards self-actualization and dominance and stuff like that. It is driven towards that. So it's like I want to, I read the article and I want to say like, well, yeah, this kind of domination relationship is bad. But the way the article sets it up previously is that sex just is about domination. Right. Like, that's the fu- that's right. baseline the way it actually is. And I want to say that, no, sex gone wrong is about domination, but Very sex well gone right is not about that. It's actually about, it's actually a grace, all right? And I, I, that sounds strange to, to most people. So like, oh, really? But no, it's like, it's not, it's no longer something you get for yourself, but something you can give to somebody else. That's right. That's right. There's so many parts of the Bible that teach about the grace of God uh, and the strength of God, God himself is very powerful, as you might, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the understatement of the of the universe, right? Right. God himself is what, what absolute power looks like. And yet God's love for us uses his power for our benefit. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at a, we're looking at a, a self-sacrificial God. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the same sort of model that we want to use in all of our relationships with each other, including marriage, where the one who has the the, the strong libido, the male libido that they're complaining about so much, yeah. is the is the one who actually uses his strength 
for the benefit of his wife. Right. It's it's a hugely different thing than to say dominating. Right. You use the wise man is the one who uses his strength for her benefit. Now, and here's where it gets a little dicey because I know this is going to sound strange, and I don't want to go all you know. Uh, what, what is that stupid book that the people people have been talking about for the last five years? Uh, um, um, nuts. Um, your best. Uh, gray, gray. Um, oh, the Fifty Shades uh, of Gray. Fifty Shades of Gray. There you go. Fifty Shades. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to go all that weird sort of. I like being you know the sort of masochistic. Uh, I like being right. abused kind no, of thing. No. I'm talking about. But I, but what I I want to say is that there is there is a delight in being. What's the word? I mean, I want to. The thing that came to mind That's, is cared for. Well, cared for is right, but I'm talking about something even more delicate than that. It's it's a. A, a, a delight in being ravished. That's the word. Okay, that's the word. Ravished. I heard a woman say one time, sex is not about rape. It's about being ravished. Okay. And the, there is a delight for a woman. I'm maybe going off in left field here. But right. there's a delight for a woman in being ravished. To having that power that the man has used for her benefit but to sweep her away to sweep her up into right. his arms and you know carry her off basically is that how we would define ravish maybe for the sake of our audience yeah because that's a word we don't if it gets used it usually is in some sort of negative or melodramatic context well it does sound sort of melodramatic doesn't it well i i want to make a distinction between the sort of a, approach to power in sex that this article gives and the approach that is that is more delightful in every i used the fire analogy earlier there the the burning logs are um extremely powerful mm-hmm. right if you were to put your hand on the log while it's burning it would burn you right. well that it's a it's a great heat that comes from that right mm-hmm. okay well the same thing with the steamroller we had i just happened to think about a steamroller as i saw one last week driving through the putting some asphalt down and uh and i thought well if misused a steamroller is a horrible thing it, the power of a steamroller would be you know to roll over a car roll over a person yeah be horrible right right but it's not intended for that it's intended for some other use and the use that it's intended for makes a great thing in the same way male sexuality the power of male sexuality is intended for a good thing and when it's used properly it actually gives pleasure it does good you mm-hmm. see i get what you're saying it's like in this like connects to so the first point was about sex is about power. We would say sex is powerful, right? But that power in the right that powerfulness in the right place in its proper context does not have to be domination. Exactly, it doesn't have to be reduced to domination. And to the second point, which is that the male sexuality is nothing but brutality. It's another reduction because it's like male sexuality has is powerful. There's a power in there right. that can become brutal. Right. Oh, yes. But, what, but that. But the thing is, we're making is see, we're making this distinction between like it going right or it's going wrong. And in the article, it's like, no, this just is what sex is, and this just is what male brutality. There's no right or wrong. This just is what it is. Sex that's is right. power, is domination. Male sexuality is brutality, and that's it. That's right. He doesn't have any. Con- it's like he has no concept. We'll get to it in a second. But he's like he has no real concept 
of the idea that sexuality is powerful and that can be used in a bat in a dominatory way, which is evil, yes. and a self-sacrificing, giving, ravishing way that is actually good. What, almost case in point, he said that you know our culture has been obsessed with like the dangers of male sexuality. What do you think our fairy tales are for? And he quotes like <sighs> Red, and he quotes Red Riding Hood as an example, right. and, and Bluebeard, right. which Bluebeard maybe. Sure. But Red Riding sure. Hood is like, okay, so the wolf eats the grandma, wants to eat the girl. Male sexuality, maybe. But what about the huntsman who kills the wolf? Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. What, like, what about he's that? The, he's the male sexuality. Right. There's this There's this contrast between the wolf and the huntsman right. that, for some reason, because in like just kind of popular sort of osmosis, we know Little Red Riding Hood, girl, and wolf. And that's it. But yeah. we forget there's the wolf, but there's also the huntsman. There's the good as well as the bad. Exactly. And it's, and like, it's a good power. And it's a good power. It's a power against evil with a rifle or whatever he uses to or kill this. Or an axe, axe or, or whatever. Or it is. To, yeah. But he's using power. Look at the power of an axe. Look at the power of a rifle. Look at the power of the tools that he's using. And yet they're used to kill evil. So they are. So he's the hero. He's the good guy. Right. So there's this. And I think that was part of what frustrated, definitely what frustrated me, is there's this reductive assumption right. going in the background. Sex is only power. Power is only domination. Male sexuality is only brutality. That's all it is. Right. And we have to learn to somehow work with that or like figure that out. And I'm just, discuss it. Discuss it. Have a, <laughs> let's have a conversation about how brutal and power dominatory driven you are can yeah. we fix it well it doesn't seem we can although we move to our third point or to his third point uh that is his third point that somehow a solution could be found in understanding classical freudian analysis of sexuality oh, and of yeah. the person right right now right. i i have just touched on freud very little so i'm i'm not going to call myself an expert what i do gather is the old breakup of like reason, will, and appetites gets sort of recast as the superego, the ego, and the id type thing. And the id, it's not a one-to-one yeah, parallel, but there's something there. Right. The, the id is like the appetites. The id is like this underbelly, undercurrent. I think Freud called it like a seething cauldron of Cauldron things. of passions. Cauldrons and, of passions, right. impulses, and, and impulses. stuff like that. The ego is your perception of yourself, like how you see yourself. Right. And then there's the superego, which is like this conscience that I'm not sure if he thinks it's inherent or if it's like socially constructed, constructed or right. conscribed. But right. your ego is sort of a product of like your id and your superego kind of negotiating between each other. And this is the perception you have of yourself. Well, I, I kind of fulfill my desires, but I'm also sort of working within right. this thing. Mm -hmm. This uh, larger super egotistical type of thing, and so there's this analysis. But on that analysis, the thing. So somehow, like, learn in the Freudian analysis. I think on just its surface, human nature, because Freud, I think, still was sort of an old school type of thinker. So he's like, what's the nature of a thing? Mm -hmm. Human nature is the id. Like the id is human nature. That's who you really. That's are. That's who you really are. Your right. ego is just your perception of yourself, which could be wrong. Right. And right. the super ego is culturally conscribed, right? Which within a... At least that's the way the 20th century reads Freud. I yeah, think. that's the way the 20th century reads. I was, I was, right. Yeah, I was, about to, I was about to say, in the post-structural sort of reading of him, well, all that's done by language. Language is arbitrarily... That's right. 
that's made right. by a society. We've society is arbitrary. We've super ego in that structure, that Freudian structure. We've informed that super ego by a lot of these post-structuralist ideas. So in the Freudian, at least this 20th, 21st century sort of version of Freud, the id is who you are. Right. Okay, the the ego right. is just your perception, which could be mistaken. The superego is just a socially constructed moral construct that is, whether it's true or not, is unknowable. We just know it's meant to, like, dominate you because everything's power. Right. 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 But the id is who you are. So if Freudian analysis basically just tells you all you are at bottom is that seething cauldron of impulses and desires. Now, a classical Freudian, if I could put it that way, may say that, well, we need to learn how to control it, you know, how to have, like, a super ego that makes an ego that actually can, like, maybe he still is working within that old idea of, like, the reason should control the heart, and the heart kind of runs uh-huh. everything. Uh-huh. Maybe he's still uh-huh. working within that. But if we're in a context of individualism, and post-structuralism in certain shades of it is definitely like hyper-individualism. You know, the subject is all that you know, and you must emancipate it from all the forces that impose upon it, internal as well as external. If we're seeing it in that light, I don't see how Freudian analysis can't do anything except basically lead us to a dead end. An end that basically says, well, look, all you are is your id, and your id as a male is obviously brutality within a context of sex that's just nothing but power domination. So... What can you do? Yeah. Like, I don't understand how that analysis would actually help uh, arrive at any sort of solution other than to simply say, hey, you're a man. Guess what? Sex is about domination and you're all about brutality. So just remember that. I think there's more to it than that. I think, well, I'm, two, two points come to yes, my mind. Yes, please. First of all, I think there, the, the postmodernist read on this Freud, the, the picture you just gave really is a kind of postmodernist reading of Freud. Yeah. And, and I'll go back to the original in a second. But I think one of the things they want is not just know that you have this id that is uncontrollable, sort of, but to say you need to recognize this is what self-awareness is. This is what wokeness is all about. You men have to realize that's who you are. And you need to stop being that way. Somehow. Yeah, they don't explain how. Just you need to be, frankly, dominated by the female. That's what happens. This is really just a call for a, a, a reversal of the of domination power. thing, right? Yeah, but in, I think in Freud, I think a, a, probably a, a, a kinder reading, and not a postmodernist reading of Freud, but a, kind, a, a modernist reading of Freud would say that the ego is actually who you are, right? And that the id is this, like you said, cauldron of passions and desires that are always trying to get you to to go a certain direction, to feed your your you know to go that direction. And your ego, your ego is also controlled by the the superego to a degree listening to the superego saying to you this is what morality looks like this is what what good society looks like this is you know giving you that so it's a little bit like the old cartoon where the guy has a a, a, a devil on one shoulder and, a, angel, and an angel yeah. on the other and one, you he's know in between and, and he's in between and the real person is the ego there trying to make decisions should i go with this should i go with that um and uh, the id is this uncontrollable nature Lizard of your brain type thing. exactly something that does but the real self is the, the the will is in the ego and so the the ego is the the one the place where you actually make the decision what to go this way or that way the the post structuralist kind of approach is to say hang on that ego really isn't holding the ground of of the will the reality is let's just let's just scrap will let's just scrap that who you really are is like you said the id 
Right. That's what you really... And then you've got this weird superego that is now no longer affected by any kind of religious information. Sure. Right? It's only, the, like you said, the, the, uh, the, the construction of the society about what's, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable uh, behavior. And so the id has to be p- sort of put in that position. Now, here's what I'd, I would say. Uh, I could agree with some of the things that he says in this article as long as... And I think... I, I think uh, uh, um, Andrew Claven said this yesterday on his podcast. I think I could agree with him to a certain degree if he were to change the word men to all people. Because to, to a degree, we've got men and women both who are being led by their ids. Sure. They're being led by their desires. And we just happen to have different desires. Right. So what we're looking at is now a clash of power. And, and this article and feminism in general is trying to say... You men are obnoxious brutes, and you need to take a step down on the power structure and let us be in charge. That's kind of what it seems like it's going to be. Go sure. To. I mean, there's a talk. I mean, equality gets thrown around, but there's the sense, there is a sense of, like, equality is going to come from a reversal. Yeah, right. That's, That's right. Like well, isn't that what we see in so many parts of our political spectrum today? The, um, uh, the point is, um, if you assume a power structure to begin with, if, if everything is just about dominance, mm-hmm. then what do you, why do you expect that this would be any different? This was, this, you would get to the point where the sexes are pitted against each other instead of for each other, mm-hmm. and the two of them are fighting uh, for dominance. And this is the way to get dominance, to say, I'm showing you that you're a dirty, rotten guy and that you're naturally a dirty, rotten guy, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and that has to be checked. And so from now on, sex is going to be without any actual power it's it's a frustrating level of hypocrisy that's that, uh, that goes around that uh, and we get in that word almost seems to lose power because everybody calls everyone else a hypocrite in our political structure i really am trying to get the strength of that word back when i say it is hypocrisy all right mm-hmm. it is hypocrisy to spend i'm talking about the intellectual movements that are behind a lot of these like more political post-structural type of ideas yeah it is the, it is utter hypocrisy to spend half your intellectual life arguing that the reason, you know, the reason women's had it so hard is because men had this super, like, negative, inferior view of women and it was inculcated in culture and that that's bad. It's hypocrisy to say that and then turn around and your response to men is to inculcate a negative view of them exactly and get that right. infused into exactly culture. Right. It's complete exactly hypocrisy right. in, in, like, the truest sense of the word and that you are what you hate. And yeah. it's like, it's this weird, there's, I keep saying weird, I don't know what else to call it. It's, it's, it's just mind-boggling tension that a lot of people in our society today, whether they be intellectual, like the intellectual class or whatever, they, they're in this situation where they want this utter sort of emancipation where they can, they, they may not frame it this way or word it this way, but they want that utter emancipation of their self to actualize themselves in any way without being dominated by anyone else. Right. And... They want moral strictures somehow. Yeah, I mean, within yeah. all these like exploding of like all the the, the Weinstein's and the Ailes and the O'Reillys and the Roy Moore's and the whatevers, whether they're guilty or not, or, uh, Weinstein's obviously guilty. But, but pull out the list, whether they're guilty or not guilty, in all of this discussion about this, it's been very strange because mm-hmm. like everybody wants everybody immediately was like, "Aha, your guys did that," and then someone on their side explodes. Oh yeah, and then suddenly right. with that. Right. More people who buy into this kind of super emancipatory idea, whether it be on the left or the right, 
they find themselves in a weird situation where suddenly they're arguing for more puritanical sexual ethics. <laughs> it is funny, isn't it, that that's what's happened. You know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember, you probably aren't, uh, the, the 90s where uh, the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal happened, mm -hmm. and uh, everybody on the, on the Clinton side basically said this argument, morality doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference what he did in private. Sex doesn't matter as long as he can do his job properly. I promise you, that's what the argument was. And mm -hmm. that was the argument from the New York Times. That was the argument from the Washington Post. That was the argument across the board. Don't get in his face. Why are you getting so puritanical about this? Right. About this? Someone wrote an article about women should be lining up in a row to pleasure Bill Clinton and if it means he keeps abortion. Exactly. Oh, yeah. There was actually somebody who said that. I would be willing to have sex with, with Bill Clinton uh, just to keep him in office to be, uh, out of thanks for him for not uh, opposing uh, abortion. Um, but but this is what... Now, what was my point? Um, about uh, how they make that argument but now with all the stuff exploding they're wanting to argue. Oh, right. Well, yeah, right. So, yeah, the art, the weird thing is that the very people, the very people who were saying in the past, sex doesn't matter, are now turning the finger and saying, you know, you guys are terribly evil for, in fact, not just you guys, but men in general are uh -huh. terribly, terribly evil because they are predatory sexual offenders. And that, and with Andrea Dworkin in mind and other feminists like her, They've said that even sex within marriage is inherently rape. Mm -hmm. It's inherently rape. All sex is rape. The only kind of sex that you could have that would be meaningful without dominance is to have no male libido. power. Male libido. Okay. Um, but let me go back for a minute to the, the other point I wanted to make about, uh, about uh, Freud. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think, um, I think we are reading Freud in a kind of postmodern way now. But the, the, what Freud actually said now, even reading him from his own day, uh, what he said about an Oedipus complex is, is, uh, is, is off base. What mm -hmm. I mean is he took the Oedipus story where Oedipus kills his father and, and marries his mother and turned it on its head and said that's basically what he deeply wanted. That's mm -hmm. what his id wants, to kill the father and to and to marry the mother. Yeah. And if we, the, the implication in the New York Times piece here, is that if we were to allow male libido its way, that's all that would happen. Every man would kill his father and, and, and marry his mother. But it's a misunderstanding, first of all, of Oedipus, because the story of Oedipus, if you know the story, he didn't want to kill his father and marry his mother. That wasn't his intention at all, right? right. His great desire, his ego said, I don't want that. In fact, the fact that it's been prophesied is so horrifying to me that I'm going to go way out of my way to make sure that it doesn't happen. Right. The tragedy of it, of course, is that it happens anyway. Right. It happens without his knowing it. And when he finally finds out that he's killed his father and married his mother, he tears his own eyes out in horror right. of what's happened. So to, for Freud to use that as a picture of how sex really is, and then to hear this fool, he's a fool, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. When I say fool, by the way, I'm not trying to be insulting. Right. I think it's, there's a difference between saying, calling somebody stupid, meaning that he didn't know what he's talking about, mm -hmm. And calling somebody foolish, foolish in my mind, for especially a biblical definition, is somebody who is uh, morally deficient. 
He simply doesn't know about the moral structure that he's dismissing. Mm. So that's that kind of, it's a kind of ignorance of morality. Foolishness is an ignorance of moral structure. Right. If you go back to my fire analogy, um, the, the world wants to get rid of, the, of the, the structure around the fire, and then, but yet still have the fire be safe. Right. And that's not going to happen. That's, it's not the that, nature of fire. That's foolishness. That's, that's what foolishness is. That's what foolishness is. So um, you've got a picture of, uh, of, of Freud giving a, a, a misunderstanding of, uh, of, of Oedipus to begin with, but then you have this New York Times piece that just assumes that Freud is right about Oedipus and says this is really what the id is all about. This is what man's sexual libido is all about, and uh, so we have to nip this in the bud. We've got to stop this right here and now. Mm-hmm. That's, that's completely ignorant of the structure of marriage. And the purpose that society has always had for marriage. Uh, today, it seems like it's almost, um, it's almost uh, 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 inherently evil to say that there are supposed to be limits to anything. And yet, when, when sexuality has been free to go anywhere and anywhere it wants to go, and we've, we don't call any kind of moral structure around it, any, put any moral structure around it, uh, the result is uh, something that nobody can live with. We, none of us wants sexual predators. None, no one. It doesn't mean just what political side you're on. Nobody says that sexual predatory behavior is okay. Mm. You know? right. So if that's the case, maybe we should go back and consider why it is that the fence was put up to begin with. Maybe we should figure out why it is marriage was such an important part mm. of uh, society to begin with. Because it does put limits around sexuality. It, we don't like it inherently because it... it makes us be um, restricted. It makes us be uh, put limits on our on our uh, exercise of our uh, libido. Right, and it's a limit, and we have had thrown up in our face again and again and again and again the abuses that can happen within marriage. Right, right, right. And it's like there's a context, and then there's a context for the context, and things that are just been completely dismissed. Marriage is a context for sex as the only safe context for sex is dismissed. But marriage in a context of some even larger moral framework right. also gets dismissed. Right. And it all, I mean, and those are, we, we, we've talked before about like immediacy versus mediacy. Marriage and a moral frame, marriage is a framework for sex and the moral order that's a framework for marriage. All those things are mediatory agencies. That's right. They are agents. They're mediatory things just you know the fireplace is a way we don't maybe you don't think about it this way but it really is a way to mediate fire to you amen in a way in a way that it there's only that power and that energy actually becomes a warmth giving pleasure giving beauty giving thing that's right and in marriage where it says marriage that is a certain way because it's defined by a certain moral thing over it so for christian marriage is not just Hey, we're going to contractually obligate ourselves to each other. Exactly. It's we're going to reflect Christ in this in this relation with, with each other. That's right. You can build the firebox out of paper if you want to. Sure. And you could claim that it's it's a fire you wanted a firebox, here you go. I'm building this firebox. Well, but you're building it out of something that is not not for the purposes of restraining fire. Right. See? So in the same way, you can define marriage the way you want to. You can define it as between two people signing a contract, uh, or you can say between any two people who've lived together for more than seven years, you know, or something like that, if you want to. But there's actually a definition for marriage 
that is like the definition of the materials necessary for the framework around the fire. They have to be of a certain kind. So it's not just marriage with any definition. It's marriage in Christian definition. Right, and the Christian definition is about Christ. Like the whole thing is supposed to reflect that's right. him. That's right. And that's, it's important to get that nailed down because we can sit here and talk all day about how, you know, you know, we could sit here and someone could say, look, the house got burned down because fire is dangerous. And we could look at them and say, look, fire is dangerous, but don't take it out of the fireplace. There and we go. could say that over and over and over again and never talk about the fireplace as the mediatory agency that turns that power into beauty and warmth and a giving this beauty giving, warmth giving, pleasure giving. We, can, right. we can go all That's day right. talking about don't take it out of the fireplace and never talk about what the fireplace actually does. Right. We can talk all day about how, you know, don't have sex outside of marriage right. or only have it within marriage, you know, right. only have right. it within the fireplace and never talk about why. I know the fireplace analogy makes people feel like, well, obviously you should have it in the fireplace, but that's just it. Marriage is supposed to be just as obvious as why the fire of sexuality should be in the fireplace of marriage should be just as obvious. And for centuries it has been. That's the silly thing. Uh-huh. We have only recently begun this idea that we can redefine these mar- these words like marriage the way we want to and not suffer any consequences for it. There's a reason why we, our as society has built up this wisdom about marriage all of, all these years. That man ought to be married and that the, the uh, in order to participate in this sexual union. Um, and what you're saying is excellent because it's not enough to simply say, don't do these things. The goal is to actually show the world what a good marriage looks like and to see how beautiful it is, just like we see how beautiful a fire is in the fireplace, in right. its proper place. We can see that uh, and pass that on to the next generation, and it's far more compelling right. than to simply say, don't ever do this and don't ever do that and don't pull the fire out right. of the room. And here's why. There is a relationship between men and women in this world that's, that is part of God's design for the world to begin with, mm-hmm. right, Adam and Eve. And that picture uh, allows for a certain kind of relationship that looks like a relationship that we can't see, mm-hmm. that isn't tangible. There's a relationship between Christ and his church Right. That is this relationship between a, a a groom and a bride, or a husband and a wife, mm. and their loving relationship is beautiful to see the two of them. And it's but it's asymmetrical. In other words, they're not two equal things. They are one who is in charge of the of the creation of the world and has has has, has spoken of his love for the beloved, mm. and then washed her he's he's actually brought her out of her sinful condition mm. and then put her in a position where she is able once again to love mm. and the two of them then are 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 uh, in relationship with each other that is purely sacrificial self-sacrificial uh, jesus gives himself away for the bride the bride out of gratitude gives herself away to the to the the groom to jesus back to jesus. and that's the relationship of christ and the church well if you think that that is only because um, that the that the sort of submission of the of the bride is only part and parcel of her uh, former sinfulness. Uh, you have to go a step further because the relationship between Christ and the church is is an imitation of some other relationship, mm-hmm. which is the relationship between the Father and the Son within the Trinity. Right. And if the Father is all powerful and the Son is submitted to Him, and yet the Son is completely God. 
Right. There isn't any lack of in him of uh, being God, then the two of them have that same kind of asymmetrical relationship in a sense where he's playing the role of the bride and the father, Jesus, I mean, and the father is playing the, the role of the, of the groom, mm. and the two of them are willing to give themselves away to each other. Jesus said, I never do anything except what, I, what the father tells me to do. Nothing. That's, I'm completely submitted to him. See? Mm. Well, that's... that's um, that flies in the that whole concept of giving yourself away to the other completely flies in the face of that whole Nietzschean will to power kind of idea that ends in in a, 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 an, an individualism that calls for people to think of their sexual pleasure for their own personal right. uh, benefit and then dominating other people yeah. in order to get that. And pleasure. why should I give myself away to others when they're probably not going to do the same? That's right. I That's mean, right. I mean, you they, can't trust them to do the same. I mean, the reality of our situation which is another point of difference between like Christ and the church, sort of, and definitely Christ and his father is the reality of the fallenness of each other. Right. And like with Christ and the church is this image of what a man and a woman in marriage is supposed to be, but it's definitely the thing that they strive towards, and within marriage, Christ is there sanctifying them towards, right. but they're never perfectly imitating that. I mean, no man can ever be Christ in his headship no woman could ever be christ like he is you know submitting to the father because yes, exactly. no man can ever be in the christ submitting to the father no man could ever be like god the father right, right. Yeah. No, no no man no woman can ever be like christ to god no, no one ever can. Yeah. it's just not how it works so fallenness is this factor that is there and it's really frustrating because fallenness is frustrating <laughs> sure. but it's frustrating because when people we, we would argue for marriage as a context for sex and people, there are people who look at us and says, yeah, but marriage has just been used to just abuse and hurt and dominate people so many times. We have to say, yes. Yes. No, it can't, it has. can't deny that. It has. It absolutely has. Right. But that doesn't mean that marriage is reducible to those things, and that's what marriage was about. Marriage was not about those things. Yes. And it's about that, you know, marriage is meant for this, and there's this larger context. And it's almost like, in a weird way, you talk about marriage is about cheating the devil. Another one, because, you know, it keeps you faithful to each other, and you have to work through these things instead of run away from each other. But another way it can cheat the devil is, we say marriage is this thing, and it's supposed to be the imitation thing, and people look at us and say, yeah, but marriage has been, you, people have been abused and sad and broken hearts. Yes, they have. We need a savior. Yeah, amen. Right, like there's the opening for the gospel, because the gospel is that larger moral context, right. even for marriage. Right. And marriage is supposed to be an image of the gospel itself. So without the gospel informing what marriage is supposed to be, and even the moral context that marriage is in, the whole thing does seem kind of impossible. You know, like if, if, if marriage is just simply, here's this ideal and it's in this, you know, sort of ideal moral structure, you know, then we're like good Aristotelians. You know, marriage has this telos, and it has this telos in this moral order, and you need to, like, discipline yourself to pursue the rational virtue right, that will uh, right. receive it. Which, look, which in the end is impossible. Which in the end is impossible. Right, like right. Even Can't Arist be done. Even Aristotle's like, well, you may not reach the telos, but it's good to go for it. Right. And, it's, and, and you tell people that, and even if you tell it in a very winsome way, and even the image of the ideal, like, strikes them as something they want, still, they're just, their instinct, which is right, is that, yes, but we're just so Far messed from up. that, yeah. Fallen right. from that. It's so easy to think, well, maybe all we are is the id. Sure. Maybe all sure. it is, maybe it's, it's, a, it's another one of these reversals that's super frustrating, 
because it's a lie, but it, another one of those things is entangled in the truth. That everybody has reversed things. That, you know, it used to be that, you know, we believed these ideals like justice and stuff and truth and goodness and, and love in a certain way, self-sacrificial love, that these were foundational realities of which existence was trying to work towards in some way, that our right. life was trying to work towards in some way. Right. But ever since, like, the advance of, you know, individualism from the Enlightenment forward or maybe the Renaissance forward, but ever since the advent and the advancement of this individualism, the self against all things, the idea that there's realities that undergird things that you can't really resist except to your peril, that threatens your individualism. Right. But at some point, you also begin to realize, you know, we're kind of messed up anyway. Like, we just defy the stuff anyway. It's like almost instinctive for us. So maybe... All these ideals we thought of aren't actually real. Maybe we just thought and made them up. Yeah. And maybe sure. the, maybe it's actually reversed. Maybe maybe when you read, I see this all the time in like literary literary criticism. Okay. If you see like a scene of romance in a in a in a story. Yeah. Okay. I feel like an older kind of criticism would attach some kind of sexual tension to it, but also say you know all this ideals about like the self sacrifice or about goodness or maybe like the inverse of it like what's really mm-hmm. going on here it mm-hmm. would attach it to these ideals and these these transcendent notions because they would recognize that this physical activity that's going on here whatever it is can actually be a conduit for transcendent notions that's right all right we flip it on our head and now we say that this situation here is simply about sex yeah because sex yeah. is the only thing we really know you know and the transcendent yeah. stuff just feels like a bunch of illusions and ideals and i feel like and thus, that must be the thing that's fundamental. Sex is what's fundamental, sure. uh, but then sex turns out to be just a social construct. Or gender. I'm sorry. Gender turns out to be a social construct. And the act of sex, sexual attraction, is also something determined by the individual. Race may become something that's determined by the individual. Class is a social sure. construct. All these things, so even the things that we now, as good modernists, would want to demystify and pull down the concrete things, now those concrete things are starting to dissolve. So we don't even have those to center around. Yeah. But yeah. I feel like... In this issue, we're all like, what's his face uh, from the silver chair, the scarecrow guy? Uh, Puddle Glum. We're all like Puddle Glum in the cave, right? And the green witch is trying to convince everyone that, no, 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 there is no Narnia, all right? You you, you know, there is no sun. You saw my torch, and you just imagined a bigger sun. Or you saw my cat, and you imagined a bigger lion, and that's where you got Aslan. It's that same reverse. No, 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 there is no self-sacrificial trinitarian love you just saw the animal act of sex and you extrapolated it to a bigger metaphysical way sure and i just want to be like puddle glum sticking my foot in the fire <laughs> yes and saying not in any sort of, i mean i may not have it puddle glum didn't have a super like intellectual rigorous he just basically said you expect me to believe that a bunch of punk little kids and a stupid scarecrow like me could just invent a world that licks your little cave hollow yes Exactly. It's like, listen, I if I have to choose between your cave and Narnia, I choose Narnia even if it's fake. Right. Even That's if it's fake. That's what he says. That's exactly what he says. And it's just you've the- got a you've got a point there. Your 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 analogy is great because the the uh, the desire that we have actually is built into our hearts. The Christian right. picture is that there is a desire for God that's built into our hearts. And when we hear and see a picture of Narnia, as like mm-hmm. you, in your analogy, um, our hearts long for it, even if we think that it's not true, even if it's mm-hmm. capable, because it's so much better than what we see by when everything collapses. Have you ever yeah. seen one of these these chandelier sort of things? Uh, where you you pick up the middle of it and lift 
and all the pieces are connected to each other, and it becomes this ma- massive, beautiful yeah. satellite. But if you if you let go of it and gravity takes over, it all collapses down to just a flat piece of glass and pieces of glass, right? right. That's sort of what I'm seeing here. The, that if we're not attached to this transcendent thing, then the whole structure of what we uh, ha- have in, in terms of our metaphysical view of the world... Um, uh, or as Weaver calls metaphysical dream, mm-hmm. it all collapses. And, it, and, and the, the postmodernist is going to say, that's how it really is. You see, you don't have any transcendent thing out there to relate to, to connect to. You have to stop trying to craft this thing on your own. Just let it be what it is. And that's where you get this, re, I think, reintroduction of the id as the, who, as the ego. Right. The id is the ego. And, that, and that's the thing. It's like... I keep using the word tensions, and I feel like the real fundamental tension is right there between there's this desire for the transcendent, even if we're not sure what it means, there's this desire for it, right. and this acknowledgement of fallenness, even though we don't maybe don't understand what that is. We're like, we have this ideal of the world, and this recognition that the world doesn't line up with it. Yeah. And they suddenly are going to have to stop and say, like, there's another facet to reality than just that our ideals, we can't seem to live up to our ideals. There's this, our, our solutions seem to be, well, let's just debunk all ideals and emancipate ourselves and just figure it out. Right. We keep emancipating ourselves from things to find out, wait a minute, now we've got craziness from tra- from Harvey Weinstein to transracialism and maybe transageism. Sure. sure. What in the world is going on? Well, it's, it's that same idea that we just simply don't want any limits to our definition of ourselves. So that yes. rampant individualism. But the ironic thing, I think, is that you, in the end, lose your individuality. Yeah. Because part of your individuality is that you are a certain amount of age or a certain gender or a certain personality or a certain race or you grew up in a certain part of the world or with certain parents and all those sort of particulars of your life actually contribute to your individual person. You're who you are, right? And uh, so if you if you debunk all those things, eventually it's like Lewis talking about how uh, a window is a great thing if you want to be able to look through the wall and into the garden. But you want the window to be transparent. Mm-hmm. Right, so that you can see the garden beyond it. But if you but if you debunk the garden too, if you make the garden transparent, mm-hmm. so that you can see through to what something else, well, then make that something else transparent. Right. Then, in the end, making everything transparent is the same thing as being blind. Right. Because you can't see anything. There isn't anything there to be seen any longer, right? right? And in the same way, I think the personality actually disappears when you start undermining all the aspects of what it means to be a particular person. Then in, in order to assert your individuality, then eventually all you are is a will. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're not a personality any longer. You're just a will. And that will is to debunk anything that stops the will from having exactly what it wants. And in a sense, we do become our ids. Our will and our id become one. And which leads to the last point you were making about this New York Times piece, which is that his argument is that in the end, if you, um, uh, the only solution is to, how does he put it? I want to quote it here. Um, it's not morality, but culture, accepting our monstrosity, our monstrosity and reckoning with it that can save us. How on the earth can it not be morality, but culture, if culture is a construction of individuals Without the the uh, the limitations of morality, how can that actually put a fireplace back around a fire? It right. can't be done. Right. It can't be done. So every power has to be uh, limited by 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 reason by those these structures, like we've said, marriage and the moral structure around marriage that defines what marriage is. 
all these things are connected together and they all are lifted up and into their places uh, by the by attachment of the top of the chandelier to the transcendent. I'm, we're going to be talking about Dante uh, mm-hmm. in the next few weeks. We're starting yeah. uh, with the Inferno, but we'll eventually talk about the Paradiso too. And Paradiso is just like that. It's an ascension into an, and a recognition of the place of everything within in its proper uh, in its proper location right. and without jealousy, without uh, assertion of power for, against the other. Uh, uh, recognition of, of one person's gifts should be honored higher than another person's, that yeah. kind of hierarchy and so on. His statement of like, it's not morality but culture that will save us, it's bizarre, but it fits perfectly within the separation of like transcendent ideals and the real world, so to right. speak. You right. see the quotation marks I'm making with my hands? <laughs> yes. Right. The, it's like that, that same separation. It almost like, because I wanted to ask him, like, how are you defining morality and culture? In that situation, sure, because if he's defining, it sounds like the way he's defining is that morality is just sort of empty, idealistic pontificating, right? About like what we ought to do. While culture is the historical material thing that actual flesh and blood people actually build, and so he's like, what we need is not a bunch of dogmatic, you know, dogmatic, idealistic pontificating. We need to do something, right? Right. Right. The question is always what to do. Yeah, but that's the thing. What yeah. to do? And it's like, is the, sure. the, and, that, and that's where the moral question comes back in. He just spent like, I don't know, his whole essay felt like a bunch of moral pontification. And then he says like, but it's not morality. And then it was like, no, no, no. It's oh, like, yeah. it's the oh, culture yeah. that we move that will it's save very us. Clear. And it's like, you can't divide your pontifications from what you build. Yeah. Or if you do, if you do separate it, and there's really no guidance for what we're building. I mean, the way he puts it is like, it's in our culture, accepting our monstrosity. Gosh, how did it? What does he That's say? That's what he says. Accepting uh, our monstrosity. It is not morality, but culture. Except that is accepting our monstrosity and, and reckoning, reckoning with, with it. it. What does he mean by those two words, accepting and reckoning? Aren't they? Aren't they? Uh, have to, don't they have to be understood in terms of a moral construct? Indeed, but I, but if you don't, then what? Ha, what? Ha, what? What does that do? It's like saying, like, let's have a conversation about it. To what end? Yeah. It's like I just accept the fact that my sexuality is brutality. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the end of that That's conversation. It. I feel like I remember Rich Lowry from National Review. He was not talking about this. He was talking about something else. But he had a similar frustration with the idea of, like, wokeness and self-awareness. Because oh, yeah. he was like, it seemed like becoming self-aware is the... Becoming aware of these things is the only end goal that any of the people who talk like this have. Right. But he's like, that's not a solution. All right, just simply saying, look, I'm going to get you wakened up, woked whatever the proper grammatical terminology is. You're no longer benighted. You're going to be woke. You're going to, you're, you're going to be self-aware of these things. But once you're aware of it, what are you supposed to do with it? Yeah. What are you supposed to reckon with it? What does that mean? Doesn't that just mean accepting it again or just sort of recognizing the fact, you know, before I go with my wife, honey, I want you to know that I'm aware that what I'm about to do is incredibly just pure brutality or, or something like that. Yeah, like, what, useless. What, That's you know, a useless thing. To it, so it's like even like the hope fruitless. that... Fruitless. That was sort of the final, one of the final things, maybe the final straw, but like... In separating culture from morality and, and then saying culture is just simply accepting who we are and what who we are. You see the quotation marks. I mean, mm-hmm. Who we are and what we built as just who we are and what we've built is just hopelessness. It's the puddle glum thing all over again. Right. It's like maybe my idea of like marriage as the safe context for sex and marriage is supposed to be a reflection of Christ where just as fire within the context of 
the fireplace becomes all that power and force suddenly becomes a warmth giving pleasure giving beauty giving thing so sex in the context male sexuality and female sexuality in the context of marriage a christ uh, a, a sacramentally christ image bearing marriage becomes goes from domination to beautiful self-giving that creates more intimacy which creates more self-giving that creates more intimacy more and trust more trust and yeah. there's there's a dynamic there that that's dynamism and it is it is it creates beauty and power of its own kind I, even if that was fake if i just made it up yeah. and all there is yeah. is really the, it, i would rather have that yeah than this hopeless just be self-aware of your brutality and just sort of accept it and then go on. I would so much rather have the notion that sexuality, especially as a man, male sexuality doesn't have to be brutality. Amen. That it could be something else. You know why? Because that's good news. Exactly. Exactly. There's no reason why we should assume what this writer assumes about sexuality. There's no reason why we should do that. As long as we have a picture uh, that's connected to the transcendent. Um, and that, that picture, you say that we, I'd rather have that picture than even if it's false, then we have to make the connection to the reality of a very specific thing, I think. that I think it all hinges on one thing. Mm. I actually think everything hinges on whether or not Jesus came out of the grave. Mm. I really do think that's the most important thing that anyone has ever considered in the world. If he did, then we know that he predicted it and we know that he is who he says he is, and we know that the things that he laid out, for example, in a definition of marriage, are reliable and good, and true, true and truly there. They're not fakes. They're not something I've made up myself. Right. If he didn't come out of the grave, then all of that, including the definitions of marriage and sexuality, are under uh, doubt. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I think the authority of them loses, uh, loses uh, um, uh, in, in, in intensity. So what we've got is a, a re I would reverse these two things. I would say at the end here where he says, it's not culture that can talk to us about what needs to be done. It's morality. But by that, I define it the way, not as the way you and I assumed he means, but in the sense that the morality acts as the, the fireplace made of the proper materials that are not flammable and makes a, a structure around which, uh, around the passions and the desires and the experiences that we have in this life that give them meaning and purpose and bring them to their proper fruition. So, yes, what he's ignoring here, I think, is the fall. There is abuse of sexual power, uh, and ab any abuse of sexual power is something that we all want to stand right. against. We see it not only outside of marriage, but we see it in marriage, too. Right. It's possible. Human beings are... Uh, abusive and human beings are dominating. They try and dominate one another and to the extent that we try and do that, it's wrong. Uh, but we know that it's wrong because of the picture that we've gotten from the scripture about the way God loved us. Here he is with all the power. He is omnipotent and yet he uses that power for our benefit. Right. And there really is a moral order that can provide a framework for our culture that can sanctify these things that's right you know, bring them to there the really is place. a christ who stepped out of the grave and everything that he said and has been said about him is uh said about truly said about him is true right. know, this is all good news and then what that's we right. hear in this article and a lot of society when you push them far enough is you don't hear good news i know we're running out of time here but i'd like to be able to offer one more analogy it just occurs to me 
um, I think there's something about this way of thinking that's actually diabolical. Mm -hmm. I don't mean just mis misguided or foolish, but, but actually diabolical. Whether this writer is conscious of this or not, I'll leave to him to decide. But there is a desire to, um, on the part of, of the devil to ruin everything. One of the ways to ruin everything is to make you think that you have to have all of it. So it's all or nothing. If we give you an example. Um, say you've got timber land, and you know that if you cut down the trees and sell them, you can make a lot of money, mm. and people can use that wood to build things. Pianos, baseball bats, houses, whatever they're going to use the wood to build. So you could, in greed, cut down every tree that you've got. It right. takes maybe 12 years to grow, grow a tree. I'm going to make up numbers here. Right. Grow, say it takes 12 years to grow, to grow a tree to the point that it's useful to, to sell. You could cut them all down and sell them all and make a huge amount of money, and then what would happen? Well, then maybe the, the land is ruined. Now you don't have any ability to grow trees, at least for 12 years, and maybe worse. Maybe by cutting them all down, you actually do such damage to the, the land that it can't grow proper right. trees again. You've, I don't know. You've damaged the ecosystems. Exactly. That area. Exactly. So, so then, so here's what happens. The devil comes in. He's taught you, first of all, to be greedy. Okay, but now he says, "You see what you've done? You've done a terrible thing. Look at the damage you've done to the world here. This is awful. You should be ashamed of yourself." You and then and your reaction is, "I am never going to cut down another tree ever." Mm. You see, I'm going to do away with the whole idea of logging and right. building things out of wood. I'm going to make plastics from now on, or something. Right. But that's not right either. Right, right. <laughs> see, that's so. And what I hear in this argument is. We have said we ought to be free to have as much sex as we want with anybody we want to. And now we see the damage. We see the houses that have been burned down, metaphorically speaking. And we say, now you know what we need? We need to have no sex. Andrea Dworkin says no sex uh, like we understand it in any way. There can't be masculine libido in any part and parcel of this. Okay, well, that's like saying I'm never going to cut down another tree. Power is inherently bad. Cutting down trees is inherently bad. I'm not going to do it anymore. But the, but the wisdom of the fireplace, the wisdom of the structure, the moral structure around it, says to you, I'm going to, I'm going to calculate how I cut, and I'm going to cut the mature trees and only say, if it takes me 12 years to grow a tree, I'm going to only cut, say, one-sixth of the trees every two years. Yeah. And then I get a rotating crop. I'll plant new ones, and that one-sixth, I'll, I'll put limits on myself and on my greed and on my desire to sell all these trees, and I'll only sell as much as the, 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 the ground can handle. So I'll cut down a sixth of them, see, and sell those, and then I'll plant new ones. By the time I've gone through a two-year cycle six times, that first group is fully, fully, fully ready to go again, see, and I can continue in a proper cycle. But what it requires is that I impose on everything a kind of structure, a kind of order to things. And that limits my, what I don't like about it is that it limits my immediate pleasure, right? It's right. the immediacy thing that comes again. But if I'm willing to limit my immediacy, if I'm willing to be uh, uh, moderate 
in my use of the, the land, then actually it can continuously repay and can do the right thing. What we don't like is this structure. We don't like the idea of being limited by anything. And until we learn that that self-limitation, that inherent uh, desire for my, my, uh, uh, my individual, my rampant individuality, as you said, to be limited, until, until I can call that off, I'm going to continue to have these kinds of problems, and I'm going to ha- continue to have these kinds of arguments that say, don't you see what you've done here? You've got to stop doing it altogether. And I go from, from, from greed to, to uh, uh, stoicism or something, and I, you know, from you know, you Epicureanism know, to stoicism, basically. You go from burning down houses to never enjoying a fireplace ever Exactly. Again. That's exactly what I'm saying. And I think that's the diabolical aspect of it. It teaches you to, it gives you just enough truth because it does, it does do damage, right? The, 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 we're agreeing that there is such a thing as sexual dominance and sexual oppression and, and, uh, and rape uh, and so on that goes on in the world. And it's a terrible, rotten thing, right? Mm-hmm. But, but what, as soon as we admit that, then what we can't do is run to the other end of the spectrum and simply say, okay, we're not going to do any of it. That's the temptation of this argument here, I think. Um, but it's, but they, those are my two, only two options unless I'm willing to go to a transcendent value, a transcendent idea that I'm calling moral mm-hmm. that would actually give uh, order and structure to the whole smear. Well, as you said, we're running out of time, so yep. we'll jump real quick to uh, recommendations. Do you have Good. recommendations? Sir? Sure. I would love to recommend a book uh, by uh, John Piper called Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Mm-hmm. It's an excellent book. We're going to be using it, actually, I think, with our fellows this year. Uh, it talks about uh, biblical definitions of manhood and womanhood and how they relate to one another, the connections between uh, the sort of sacramental connections between uh, the structure of marriage and the uh, the way that Jesus and His Bride, is, uh, the Church, works, and how uh, how we are to uh, lovingly Im- impose those limits for the benefit of the of the culture. Okay. Uh, for me, um, this is going to be an odd recommendation, I suppose, because it's kind of late. But I just now saw Moana. Oh. Okay. Speaking of Disney movies, I just now saw Moana because it was on uh, it was on streaming, so I was able to stream it. And uh, it's not like the most stupendous Disney movie that's ever been made. It's very well made, but it's not the most stupendous. But I am going to recommend it because in it I found an interesting thing that occurs. And I'm not going to give away too much here. Uh, the only part I will give away is giving away real early, so it doesn't matter. Uh, but when the movie starts and like, the first song strikes up and everything, you feel like you know exactly what's going to happen. Oh, they're on an island and they're all happy but the chieftain guy has decreed nobody goes beyond the reef. Like, oh, yeah. like we don't go beyond the reef type thing. And, of course, what does Moana want to do? She wants to go beyond, so, beyond so, the reef. She just, Why wouldn't she? That's and she the just nature feels, of sin. She just feels her heart just wants to go out. And so you think you know what the story is going to be. It's right. going to be like, here's the simple, here's, again, the emancipatory individualism. You know, break all the boundaries because all boundaries are inherently bad if my right. heart says so. Well, and this is the part I'm somewhat giving away. Interestingly enough, she finds out that her grandmother teaches her that her people used to be sailors and wayfinders. Uh-huh. Wayfarers. But then her dad, the chieftain, outlawed it because he went out once and a friend of his died. And so he outlawed it all. Oh, I see. And so Moana suddenly finds out that the reason 
her heart is leading to go beyond the reef is not because of some subjective sort of just, well, just how I feel. No, it's because that's who she is. Uh-huh. That's who her people actually are. Mm. So in a very weird inversion, it actually turns out her dad is the rebel, mm. rebelling against who, like the telos of his own people and who they really are. And Moana is actually the traditionalist. Wow. So it's a weird, interesting story about how when you actually rebel against who you're meant to be, it's somebody who finds tradition again actually becomes a rebel. Instead, So if you want to see the movie in that light, it actually is a very interesting movie about somebody yeah. finding their real identity uh, that was tried to be covered up. So yeah. I recommend Moana and maybe to take a look at it through that interpretive lens. Very good. Very good. Uh, that's, uh, that's all we got time for today. Uh, we'll see you next time on From the Center. Very good. See you then. Thank you.